0: You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit enduringword.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's question and answer program. Uh, welcome, especially to our TWR 360 audience. That's that great ministry, Trans World Radio, been reaching the world for decades with shortwave radio. And now they do a spectacular work, not only with that continuing on, but also with their online presence. Again, TWR 360. Welcome to them. Welcome to you, wherever you are, coming and joining us for today. And today we're going to focus on questions that have come to us by email or uh, any other kind of message, uh, comment on a video, uh, any kind of format that comes to us. We're going to focus on those questions today, but I do just want to say we love your feedback. We love your response. So again, you can feel free to leave questions as a comment to this. Uh, You can find a way to email it to us. Look us up online, EnduringWord.com. But uh, I'm so glad you could join us today. If we've never been introduced before, my name is David Guzik, and uh, some people know of my work. I have an online commentary on the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, and there's some people who find it helpful. If that's you, uh, well... I'm glad that it's the case. If not, maybe you take a look at it. It's just a great resource to help both people who have been familiar with the Bible for a long time and those who are just getting to know the scriptures with just clear, direct explanations of what the Bible says and how it applies. So let's get into the questions that we're going to deal with on today's question and answer. We're going to begin with a question about something called spiritual formation. And Scott sent us this by email. He said this. Um, so Someone recently told me they were focusing on spiritual formation. This term was new to me, and as I researched it, I found people referring to it as a movement and even as a method of transformation to be more like Jesus. It almost sounded like it is a works based way of growing spiritually. I get that we need to do more study, understand the Word, who God is, and how we move closer to Him, but it sounds a little bit like if you do things and practices, you can become more like Jesus. So he's curious if I'm familiar with the term spiritual formation and if he was correct to show how biblically it may not be what people think it is. Well, again, Scott, thank you so much for your question here. Listen, from the brief bit of research that I've done, you know, in the past, uh, the idea of spiritual formation There is definitely some weird and unbiblical stuff that goes on in the name of spiritual formation. I don't doubt that at all. And those things should definitely be rejected. And so if you find things that deal with rituals and customs and religious bondage and and manipulation and pressure and uh, or things that conform really to the spirit of the age in many ways, those are things to be on guard for and to be rejected. However, I will say this. And Scott, I I, want to say this to you and everybody who's in our audience here. We need to be very careful about rejecting things just because of a name. And this is why I mean it. There may be a spiritual formation movement out there that has some weird stuff associated. But if somebody uses the phrase with you, don't assume that that's what they mean by it. For some people, the idea of spiritual formation is just another way to describe discipleship. You know, becoming more like Jesus. We know from Romans chapter eight that God's will is for us to be conformed into the image of his son. Day by day on this side of eternity, we should be becoming more and more like Jesus. And that process will be ultimately consummated in the resurrection when, when we will know him as we are known, when when our salvation will be perfected and completed in Jesus Christ. You could say right here, right now, that sanctification, that's a good old-fashioned word, is an aspect of spiritual formation. You could say as well that discipleship is an aspect of spiritual formation. And what I'm just saying is that, yes, there are some weird things that people do and promote and practice under the name of spiritual formation today, but just please, let's be careful about either condemning something. Or accepting something simply by the name with which it is called. So with that person that you're having a conversation with about spiritual formation, it's very helpful for you to ask, well, what do you mean by spiritual formation? What does that mean to you? what, What do you mean by it? And again, it's possible that they mean something as wholesome and as good as just simple discipleship. So keep that in mind, Scott, and I hope that is helpful for you uh, in answering your question. Number two, we come to a question from Sue. Sue asked this question. Um, it has to do with Jehovah's Witnesses at her door. Uh, again, by email, Sue asked, um, How is it best to deal with Jehovah's Witnesses calling at my door, please? Do I engage them or not? Do I discuss with them, etc.? Well, Sue, uh, let me tell you that uh, it's interesting that you bring this up because when I was a very young believer, I got kind of excited about researching what Jehovah's Witnesses believed, comparing that to what the Bible actually says, and then learning how to speak to Jehovah's Witnesses about it. Somewhere I've got a... uh, 40 year, more than a 40 year old tape of me tape recorded of a discussion with some Jehovah's witnesses, leaders, or at least leaders in our particular area. And they wanted, excuse me, I was holding back a sneeze there. Uh, They wanted to speak with me and I had a long debate with them and it was just sort of interesting to me and I tape recorded it. But uh, what I want you to know, Sue, is that for some people, The challenge of learning how to answer somebody like Jehovah's Witnesses or those from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, commonly called Mormons, or some other progressive Christian group or heretical group, sometimes it's that challenge that really spurs people on to learn more about the Bible. And if that's the case with you, that's a very good thing. However, Sue, I don't think you should feel responsible to do that. I think it's entirely okay for an individual Christian to say, you know what? That's really not my area of interest. That's really not my area of calling. I know that they're not biblical. Uh, So I'm just going to say this to the Jehovah's Witness who comes to my door. I'm going to say this plainly. Number one, I want you to know I'm a Christian who believes the Bible and because I believe the Bible, I believe that Jesus Christ is God and really, I don't have any interest in what you'd have to tell me. Good day. And you can just keep it really that simple. Now, one thing you should know, again, about Jehovah's Witnesses or uh, Mormons that come and knock at your door, you should know that many people are overly impressed by their sincerity and by their uh, energy with which they advance the cause. They think, well, nobody's ever knocked at my door uh, uh, on the case of evangelical Christianity, biblical Christianity. At least these people are out here doing the thing. And look, that, that is something positive to be said. They, they really are out there. But one thing you need to understand about the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, These are fundamentally works-based religions, works-based faiths. They're at your door because they have to earn their salvation. And it's true. If we put that pressure, that weight under, or maybe I should say over, Bible-believing Christians today, maybe they would get more done, but it wouldn't be biblical Christianity. Sue asks a second part of the question here. She says, how can I learn to explain my faith? To my shame, I can only explain the basics of salvation. I'm a believer, have been saved, read the Bible, pray, have learned far more, listen to your videos endlessly. But I'm very hard pushed to explain clearly, succinctly, and with Bible references, learn by heart my belief. Sue, again, God bless you. Um, And I'm so glad that you're learning. I'm so glad that you're growing. And Sue, about the only thing I could say is how to better explain your faith is simply to do this, is to work at it, to practice it. I mean, Sue, the way you explain your question to me, you've got a lot going for you. You're a believer. You've been saved. You read the Bible. You pray. And you're learning and listening a lot. Praise the Lord for those things. If you want to learn how to share your faith better, that's going to come through practice, through repetition. So I don't know if you're like me, but uh, I'm the kind of person that very rarely do I do something well the first time I do it. Very rarely. If there are things that I can do well, or at least moderately well, It's because I've done them again and again and again repeatedly. And so uh, that's how it is oftentimes with those basic things about sharing our faith so you want to learn how to explain your faith better then you just need to learn how to do it again and again and again you you can learn how to give a two-minute explanation as to why you're a christian and you can learn how to deliver that by speaking to yourself in the mirror or just in an empty room again and again and again and, and you'll just get better at presenting it so don't feel bad that it's difficult for you to do. Don't feel bad that this is something that you have to learn in and grow in. There's nothing to feel bad about that at all. Thank you for your questions, Sue. Next question we're going to get at today comes from Susan. And Susan sent this question via the Enduring Word app. Hey, can I just give a couple of plugs right here? First of all, you need to get the Enduring Word app. Uh, You can find it by just searching for Enduring Word on the App Store for iTunes or Google Play. It's absolutely free. There's no in-app purchases or anything. It's just free. Friends, I'll be honest with you. Um, Any reach that I've had in ministry has really come, any substantial reach has come because I give things away. And so we're very happy just to give away that app with no strings attached, no paid levels, no things that you unlock for money. Once you're in the app, it's just free. And the app also gives a way that you can communicate with us as well. Well, Susan asked this question uh, through the app. She says, I'm studying uh, Revealing Revelation, uh, page 24, and it asks me to determine if there is a second coming of Christ. Your comment here in Zechariah chapter 14 states that Rome attacked Jerusalem in 70 AD with a multinational army. I'm having difficulty locating reference to any army besides Rome and attacked. Do you have any information about the other nations that were with Rome? Okay, Susan, I'm glad you asked this question because it gives me a chance to explain and to clarify. I'm not trying to say, and maybe I should go back and clarify this in my Zechariah commentary. I'm not trying to say that there were a collection of different nations or empires in with the Roman army fighting alongside the Roman army attacking Jerusalem in 70 AD. No, that, that wasn't the situation. It, it's not like, oh, uh, here's the army of the Ethiopians. I think Ethiopia at that time was outside of the Roman Empire. And so the Ethiopians are attacking. And here, this barbarian tribe from Europe, they're attacking as well. And all these nations outside of the Roman Empire joining in with the Roman Empire. That that wasn't the case. This was a Roman army that attacked Jerusalem in 70 AD. However, the Roman armies were multinational. In other words, since the Roman Empire extended over many nations and incorporated many nations, they would draw people soldiers from those nations to come and fight in either the Roman legions or more commonly the auxiliaries to the Roman legions. They would fight alongside with those Roman armies. Uh, Here's a quote that I want to highlight for you here um, based on Matthew chapter 27, verse 27. And Matthew 27, 27 reads like this. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus in the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. Now, uh, the commentator R.T. France, in his commentary on the book of Matthew, says this. The soldiers of the governor were auxiliaries, not Roman legionnaires, and would be recruited from non-Jewish inhabitants of the surrounding areas, Phoenicians, Syrians, perhaps Samaritans. So, this is what I'm just trying to say. There weren't only ethnically Romans in the Roman army that attacked uh, Jerusalem in AD 70. No, it was a multinational army in the sense that the Romans incorporated Phoenicians and Syrians and Samaritans and whatnot, other nations as well, into their army during that extended period. So I hope that's helpful for you there, uh, Susan. That's really what I mean for it. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity to clarify that uh, because I see how what I wrote perhaps could be misunderstood to imply that there were like other nations, nations outside the Roman Empire that came and were with Rome attacking Jerusalem. That was not the case. It was more a multinational Roman army that attacked Jerusalem in AD 70. Okay, let me go to the next question from Ramona. This question comes via Facebook. Thank you for your question, Ramona. Uh, Basically, it has to do with children and baptism. Ramona writes this. I'm writing to you regarding baptism. At what age approximately should a child get baptized? My son is 10 and asked us a few times to get baptized. We go to a non-denominational church regularly, and they have baptized children as young as eight. Our pastor believes a child can be baptized when he reached a level of maturity and knows the difference between right and wrong. My husband is of a more conservative opinion and feels that a person should wait longer until at least a teenager or young adult. Why the Bible doesn't say an age, we know that Jesus got baptized as an adult. I appreciate your answer. Well, Ramona, thank you very much for the question. And I'll give you the answer that I would just say very quickly, is that a person should not be baptized apart from meaningful faith and repentance. That's simply it. If a person, if a child, a young man, a young woman is old enough to give a meaningful uh, repentance and faith, then they can and should be baptized, putting their trust in Jesus Christ. I would base this on a couple of passages. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 38 reads, uh, Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Of course, those were Peter's famous words on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And if you notice, Peter said, uh, repent. And by the way, this was a crowd that had already declared their desire, basically to believe on Jesus. They're saying, you know, what must we do to be saved? What should we do, Peter? So there was faith and repentance implied there. And on that basis, Jesus said, if you repent, if you believe, then you may be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. By the way, just to clarify something before I go to the second passage, I don't believe that faith and repentance are are two different things. I think that they're different aspects of the same thing. They're different aspects of what it means to turn to the Lord. If I turn to the Lord, I'm going to turn towards him in faith, and I'm going to turn away from sin and self. That's repentance. So that act of turning towards the Lord is going to mean that I turn my back on some things, and I turn towards the Lord in other things. Well, just another quick passage that speaks about this, Acts chapter 8, verses 36 and 37. By the way, remember these words, because the next question is going to deal with this as well. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Well, okay, so that's the simple thing. They he, he believed, he made this profession of faith, then he was baptized. Now, Ramona, your question said that basically your husband felt that it was appropriate to wait a while before the baptism of your children. Ramona, I would completely trust your husband's judgment on this. You see... Oftentimes, almost always, it's the parents who have the perception to know uh, how far along the child is. And if your husband looks at your children and says, no, nah, I don't think they're quite ready, then you should wait. I leave that judgment up most of the time to the parents. The reason why I say most of the time is There have been times when parents have brought to me a child for baptism that I kind of clearly felt or could perceive that child's not ready. Then I would say, "Uh, let's wait a little bit, mom and dad. Sometimes people get baptized just because it seems exciting, Just because it seems something to do. Sometimes kids want to get baptized because they see other people doing it and they just want to do it. Now, again, it's not wrong to want to get baptized. That's a good thing, actually. But again, please remember that it comes down to this, that baptism should be uh, practiced on the basis of a credible expression of faith and repentance and whatever age that could happen, that can be valid. That's the best answer I could give to you there, Ramona. I hope that's helpful for you. Okay, now, actually, this next question was related to my previous question, because it's going to deal with a passage of Scripture that I just read to you. Acts chapter 8, verse 37. Basically, this question has to do with whether or not Acts eight thirty-seven belongs in the Bible. This is from Beverly, and Beverly's part of our TWR 360 audience. Here she writes, I was having a discussion on baptism with a friend of mine, and I referenced Acts chapter 8, verses 36 and 37. To our surprise, verse 37 was not in her version, the ESV. I did some research, but I'm curious about your thoughts on this. Some manuscripts include here, Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. The eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Beverly, great question. Let's compare, first of all, Acts chapter 30, Acts chapter 8, verses 36, 37, and some of 38, uh, in two different Bible translations. Here it is in the New King James Version. Th- this is the Bible translation that I use in my own commentary work. Here we go. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Now, verse 37, then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, I need to point something out here. If you go to your New King James Version Bible and you look at that verse, there will be a note. If you're looking at an electronic version, it's something you click on or press on. If you're looking at it in print, uh, it's going to be a note at the bottom of the page. Well, what do you do with that note? Well, here's what the note says in the New King James Bible. Here it is a New King James Version note N U M omit verse 37. It is found in Western texts, including the Latin tradition. What this is telling you is that there are some notable Manuscripts, highly respected manuscripts that's what it meant bear there by n u and m It's speaking of some highly respected ancient manuscripts of the Bible do not have verse 37. However, it is in many of the Western, sometimes called Byzantine texts, excuse me, the Western texts, including the Latin tradition from the West, I should say. Take that word Byzantine out of there. Okay, so that's Acts chapter eight, starting at verse 36 in the New King James. Let's take a look now at the ESV, the English Standard Version. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, there is no verse 37 in the ESV. So it just skips over now to verse 38. So he commanded the chariot to stand still and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Now, there's a note in the ESV. Here's the note found in the ESV translation. It says this, some manuscripts add all or most of verse 37. And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Again, the ESV just indicates that this is some manuscripts. Well, we're left with a sort of a conundrum, aren't we here? We we have some manuscripts that include verse 37. You have some manuscripts that don't. How do we know which is more reliable? Well, Let me read to you a note from the Expositor's Bible Commentary on this passage. I think this might be helpful for some of you. Here's the, the note from the Expositor's Bible Commentary on verse 37. Our better manuscripts omit verse 37. D is lacking from 826 to 1014, but E, a number of minor texts, such as church fathers as Irenaeus, Tertullian, Cyprian, Ambriaster, Ambrose, and Augustine, add with minor variations the characteristically Western reading. Okay, so here's what it's getting at. It's saying this is not found in many older manuscripts. Some of the oldest manuscripts we have do not include that. However, it is included in the writings of many of the church fathers, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Cyprian, Ambriaster, Ambrose, and Augustine. Now, here's the interesting thing here. This gives credence to the idea that, first of all, this verse was accepted by the early Christians, and it may be referring to something that existed before the earliest manuscripts we have. Some of the biblical books, the time span from between when they were written and the earliest manuscripts we have— can be more than 100 years. Maybe that verse existed in some of the copies that are lost to history. I'm not saying with certainty. These things have to be considered on a case-by-case basis. And so I'm just trying to illustrate for you here that this is a somewhat complicated issue, Beverly, and that... uh, I wouldn't build a doctrine of the baptism based on Acts chapter 8, verse 37, but neither would I just casually throw it out and say, well, we know that it doesn't belong because it is teaching a biblical truth that there's a link between a credible expression of faith and baptism. We we know that to be true biblically. Uh, Because it's teaching a biblical truth, it may very well have existed in early manuscripts that are lost to history. The other thing we notice by this is just how rare such situations are. Friends, we have such a blessing to have a Bible text that we receive now, 2,000 years later after it was written, that... So little of the text has these kind of questions about it. It's a testimony to how reliable our biblical text is. I hope that's helpful for you there, Beverly. Hey, before I go on to the next question, um, I, I do just want to say, if you haven't checked out our Bible reading plans on the Bible app, uh, it's also called Version or just the Bible app, If you haven't checked out our Bible reading plans, we just came out with a new one not too long ago. These Bible reading plans are great. And here's the extra special good news. We publish them in a lot of different languages, Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, Russian, uh, Farsi, Arabic, Chinese, uh, French, I believe as well, and probably a few other languages that aren't coming to mind right now. So, check out the Enduring Word Bible Reading Plans on Version. Some people call it the Bible app. It's the most popular Bible app out there. And especially if you know people who would benefit from these Bible study aids or helps in other languages, get that news out to them. All right, on to the next question now from Karen. And this, again, came by email. Karen asks... Our Christian religions have intermarried pagan culture and traditions in with our worship with the celebrations of Easter and Christmas. I am aware of the history behind this and Constantine's effort to take a pagan holiday and have it recognized for Christ, but is still a co-mingling. Our Father calls us to be a set-apart people, and we have joined in with these pagan cultures and traditions of other gods, and the Bible tells us what happened to people of old when they did that. You are a Bible scholar, and I hope you can shed some light on this and help me to be more comfortable with these changes if they are in the right. But if they are not in the right, then how can we bring about change? Thanks so much for sharing your knowledge with us all. Well, Karen, let me just put it to you very directly. I think that it's fine if modern Christians want to celebrate Christmas or Easter, and if they do it simply in a biblical, God-glorifying way. To me, and I'm just going to give you my take on this, Karen, you're asking me the question. It matters very little what Christmas meant 1,500 years ago. What matters to me today is what it means today and how I celebrate it today. I think that the so-called pagan origins of Christmas and Easter are sometimes exaggerated. But even if they aren't exaggerated, it doesn't bother me that much. Because what matters is what does it mean? speak of today. And I would say that there's a right way and a wrong way. Somebody can recognize Christmas today. There's a right way and a wrong way that somebody can recognize Easter. Here's the issue for me, Karen, because the Bible does not specifically command one way or another, then we have freedom in Jesus Christ. And Karen, I think this freedom goes two ways, We have the freedom to observe a holiday such as Christmas, but we also have the freedom to not observe it if our conscience tells us that we shouldn't. Karen, if your conscience tells you, I'm not going to celebrate Christmas, then don't do it. And don't celebrate Christmas as unto the Lord. I hope you understand what I'm saying by that. You can not celebrate it and not celebrate it as unto the Lord. So, whatever we do, we can do on the basis of freedom in Christ and according to conscience and, and just not be concerned with what other people think. Because on such issues, we do have genuine freedom in Christ. Let me show you a Bible passage from Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. It says this, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. Karen, I want you to notice those words. Let no one judge you. And Karen, I mean this. Let no one judge you if you keep it or if you don't keep it. Just do what God has persuaded your heart to do. You know, there have been notable Christians or Christian groups throughout the ages that have refused to celebrate Christmas. The pilgrims who settled uh, New England uh, in the colonial days of the United States, uh, they they didn't celebrate Christmas. They thought it was unbiblical, and so they weren't going to do it. Well, God bless them for that. They can do it or not do it and let no one judge it. Let no one judge you if you do it as you do it unto the Lord, or let no one judge you if you don't do it as long as you don't do it unto the Lord. Hope that's helpful there for you, Karen. This is one of those areas where people can respond to God's work and God's guidance according to their conscience. Thanks again. Next question comes from Shell. Again, this is another question that comes via the app. We love that Bible app, don't we? That uh, Enduring Word app. You can get it for free at the uh, uh, iTunes Store or the um, Google Play. That's where you pick up the Android apps. All right. From Shell, via the app asks us, What were Jesus's last words? uh, Luke 23, 46 or John 19, verse 30. I am very confused. Thank you in advance for your help. Well, Shell, I hope I can shed a little light on this. What you're talking about here is the order, the arrangement of what has often been called the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. And Shel, what I'm going to give you is what I think is the accurate And it is the traditional ordering of these seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. Number one, Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Number two, in Luke chapter 23, verse 43. Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Of course, that's what Jesus said to the thief on the cross who believed. Number three, a woman, behold your son, and then behold your mother. Um, I would have to dig into a little bit to see the reasons for putting that as the third saying. I think there's some case to be made that that might have actually been the second saying on the cross. To me, it seems that Jesus entrusted his mother unto the care The custodianship of John somewhat early of his time on the cross and his interaction with the thief on the cross took place after he had been on the cross for some time. So you could have a little bit of quibble that two and three should be reversed. But let's go on and take a look at number four, number four, found in Matthew chapter 27 and Mark chapter 15, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, Jesus said, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, That's in Matthew chapter 27. And then we come to John chapter 19, verse 28, I thirst, verse 30, it is finished, And then finally, uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. So uh, I would say that that is the last saying. Again, could it be that number six and seven are uh, switched in order? It's possible, But I think that likely the very last thing that Jesus said was, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. I would say that the last words of Jesus on the cross are those ones taken from Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Again, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. That's how I see it. Uh, again, Shell, I know other people would have other approaches to that, but I think that that's a good ordering of the seven sayings on the cross. They come now to a next question comes from Sylvia. Sylvia asks this question. How can someone receive the Holy Spirit without the laying on of hands, and how can someone know they are endowed or filled with the Holy Spirit without speaking in tongues? Thank you and great blessings to you. Sylvia, thank you for your question, and I'm glad you asked this. First of all, there are a few occasions in the book of Acts and also described in Paul's letters where people receive the Holy Spirit or a gift from the Holy Spirit as hands are laid upon them. And the idea of hands being laid upon, it's just praying some, with somebody with what you might call a sympathetic prayer, a, a prayer of, of a, you know, hey, I, I'm, I'm coming alongside you. I'm joining with you to pray for you. That's the idea sort of symbolically of laying on of hands. And that's why that phrase is used sometimes in the scripture. So, How can someone receive the Holy Spirit without the laying on of hands? Well, just because there's a few occasions in the New Testament where people receive the Holy Spirit as hands were laid upon them, it doesn't mean that that's a necessary requirement. It's completely fine to do. And if I were to pray for somebody that they would receive the Holy Spirit, I would probably be praying with them with the laying on of hands. But it's not like it's a magical or ceremonial thing. The Holy Spirit was poured out upon the disciples in the upper room in Acts chapter 2, 120 of them, and there's no record there that they were laying hands on one another uh, when that happened. So again, it's not a necessity, but it certainly is a practice that's shown for us in the scriptures. Now, Sylvia, you also asked this question. How can someone know they are endowed or filled with the Holy Spirit without speaking in tongues? Well, Sylvia, let me tell you. I don't believe that speaking in tongues is the best evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't think it's the best evidence uh, for a few reasons. Number one, uh, it is possible for people to imitate to counterfeit the true gift of tongues just by babbling sounds. That's possible. And even the true gift of tongues is not the best evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit because uh, even the true gift of tongues uh, isn't necessarily manifest in everybody who's filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul made this very clear when he spoke in to the Corinthians. Uh, by saying, uh, do all speak in tongues? And the way that he wrote that, the expected answer was no. Not all believers spoke in tongues. So, here's what we know. Is that a much better measurement for someone being filled with the Holy Spirit is if the fruit of the Spirit is evident in their life. You know that from Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Let me just make it very plain to you, Sylvia. The fruit of the Spirit is the real evidence of the work of the Spirit. It's not primarily supernatural gifts. Listen, I'm all for supernatural gifts and I love to see God at work in supernatural ways. But the real fruit of the Holy Spirit is seen in love, joy, peace, long-suffering. If you have a group of people who claim to have all sorts of spectacular miracles and signs and wonders, but amongst themselves, there's not the love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control that is the true fruit of the Spirit, then you just should ask yourself, where is the Holy Spirit at work among them? We look for the measuring line for the work of the Holy Spirit to be the fruit of the Spirit and not supposed or or even legitimate supernatural works of the Holy Spirit. So that's the best measurement, Sylvia, to know that you're filled with the Spirit, that you're walking in the Spirit, that the work of the Holy Spirit is active in your life. Ask yourself the question, ask other people the question, do you see the fruit of the Spirit in my life? That's a great way to see how spiritually filled, spirit-filled a person is, and how spiritually surrendered they are. Okay, let me go on to another question. I guess this was left by a phone call or a phone message of some kind. Bernard asks, you mention that whenever a man will not step up to take on the role of a teacher over a congregation, God will allow for a woman to do so. Where in the Bible does it say that if a man doesn't step up to teach a congregation, he will allow for a woman to fulfill that role? Another question is, can a woman be a disciple? There's a smiley face after that. And, oh, the smiley face must have been by the person recording the question. And are spiritual gifts for women? Okay, well, let me just get to your question here, Bernard. There is not, a chapter and verse in the Bible for the idea that if there are no men to lead God's people, then women may may take more leadership than biblical order would normally allow. I, I don't have a Bible verse for that, Bernard. But I'll just say this. If you think that there are never under any circumstances, exceptions from normal order, then Bernard, we're just going to have to disagree. Look, I, I believe that there's times and there's situations where God would allow things out of normal order. There's a normal order for the church, and then sometimes there are extraordinary circumstances. Let's just say, It's a hypothetical example, but just say that you're in a nation where there's heavy persecution of Christians. You're in North Korea, and all the men in the congregation are put in prison or all the men of any kind of spiritual knowledge and maturity. Well, then who should lead the group of the Christians? Who should lead the house church? If you would say never under any circumstances whatsoever, could a woman lead a congregation and God allow it, then I would disagree. Now, again, I want to say, I'm not trying to say, Bernard, that that's the normal order for a church. I I would say that it would only be under the most exceptional circumstances. But, Bernard, there have been times when the church has been under exceptional circumstances. So, I I don't think it's a normal order kind of thing. But, wow, what a difference Uh, There is in some times, in some places in the world. Bernard, let me use an imperfect analogy. If a 12-year-old could, in an emergency, with no one else available, if that 12-year-old could drive someone to the hospital, that would be allowed. (laughs) You, You would say, okay, it's good. But it does not argue... Let's allow every 12-year-old to drive. That's not the issue at all. I'm just trying to say, Bernard, that there can be circumstances. Now, in the world today, when we see a woman pastor, does it fit into that situation? I would say rarely, rarely. 95, 99% of women pastors uh, serving in churches on that level— Leading congregations 95, 99% of the time, um, I, I think, no, they shouldn't be in that position at all. But can I conceive and have there been in church history certain circumstances that would be an exception to that? Yes. Now, what What people want to do is they want to take those exceptions, those exceedingly rare exceptions, and they want them to erase what the normative practice is for the church. And that should not be allowed. That should not be, you know, accepted for one bit. There is a normal practice for the church. And sometimes there are extraordinary circumstances where the church has to do the best they can. Now, Bernard, you also ask, uh, can a woman be a disciple and are the spiritual gifts for women? Bernard, look, I, I honestly don't know what you mean by those questions. Of course, women can be disciples. Uh, of course, women have spiritual gifts. But that's just not, again, that's, I, I don't get where you're going with that question. But again, I, I would just say that there are extraordinary circumstances where um a woman leader of the congregation might be the best alternative available. Uh, These circumstances would be very rare and almost unknown in the Western world, especially. I I would see that being a thing under persecution, uh, under missionary circumstances, perhaps, but very, very rarely. That's how I would see it. And that's how I would express it. Again, I would recommend people can go to my videos I have a couple videos that might be helpful. One is called uh, The Role of Men and Women in the Church. It's my teaching on 1 Timothy chapter 2, this passage having to do with the roles of men and women in the church. Also on our YouTube channel, you can look up a video that I have called Dear Woman Pastor, where I use that video and I speak as if I were speaking to a woman pastor and what I would say to that woman pastor. So you can look those up and maybe that would be uh, helpful or or. Of benefit to you. All right, we're coming up to the last question that we're gonna take today. And the last question we're gonna take today has to do with the tribulation and the great tribulation. And it comes from Mandy, again by an email. This is Mandy's question In the book of Revelation, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, describing events of the entire seven-year tribulation or only the last three and a half years of the tribulation, the great tribulation. How does a pre-tribulation rapture fit into this? Some of Pastor Guzik's commentaries look like he's using the words tribulation and great tribulation synonymously. Okay, well, Mandy, sometimes it is difficult. Now, I'm just going to agree. Maybe this is a confession, sometimes I use the terms imprecisely. Sometimes I'm speaking just very generally instead of speaking precisely. I believe that you can call the entire seven-year period, the period that some people call the 70th week of Daniel. Now, I, I always have to explain. Whenever we're talking about these things, about end times and eschatology, these are things that there's significant disagreement with among Christians. Um, People disagree about the nature of the kingdom, the arrival of the kingdom. uh, And those who have agreements on those things sometimes disagree amongst themselves as the nature, the timing, the circumstances around the return of Jesus Christ. I just want to say that I understand uh, where brothers and sisters who disagree with my perspective are coming from. I love them. I respect them, but I don't necessarily agree with them. I think they're wrong and I'm right. I hope that's not weird to say. Of course, I think I'm right. <laughs> why would I Why would I knowingly hold something that I think is wrong? Of course, I, if I hold it, I, I hold it because I think it's right. Uh, and if I think I'm right, it means that they're wrong. I, I just say, I don't think that they're evil. I don't think that they're stupid. Uh, I just disagree with how they're approaching the scriptures on some of these issues. So this is how I would understand it, that the entire seven year period preceding the glorious return of Jesus Christ, you could call that entire seven year period, the tribulation. If you do want to get specific, you could call the second three and a half years, the great tribulation. Now, all this comes from something that Jesus said, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, speaking, I believe again, there's disagreement in the Christian world, but I believe Jesus was speaking of this period of time when he said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation, such has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. I have to tell you, brothers and sisters, I think that that time is still in the future. I know that there's lots of believers who read their Bible and say, no, 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 all that was fulfilled back when the Romans conquered Jerusalem in 70 AD. I don't believe so. I believe that there's been more horrific times for humanity since, and since there has been, that would make what Jesus said not true. Because whatever Jesus described, it would be the worst time of suffering and calamity on the earth ever in all of history and I don't think that that was 7080 7080 was terrible, but it wasn't the worst suffering a calamity of all of human history. Now Jesus used the word tribulation and he used the phrase great tribulation. Now I believe that the first three and a half years of that seven year period, the Antichrist will bring tribulation to believers. A lot of it surrounding the mark of the beast. That'll be tribulation. In the second three and a half years, there's going to be two aspects of tribulation. One, the Antichrist will begin to persecute the Jewish people in earnest. That's one aspect. Believers will be persecuted throughout the whole period. In the second three and a half years, the Antichrist will begin to persecute the Jewish people and, more pointedly, God will pour out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world. That will be what makes that tribulation truly great. It'll be the outpouring of God's wrath. So what I'm just trying to communicate to you here, Mandy, is, yes, it's true. I, like I suppose some other Bible teachers, we are guilty of sometimes using these terms without a lot of precision. But in general, I would say I could refer to the entire period as tribulation because it'll be tribulation for believers. Now, I I am one of those who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. I believe that the church, that the body of believers existing on earth at that time will be received by Jesus in the air, in the clouds, that they will escape that. But I also believe that there will be many who will come to faith during this period of tribulation and they will be persecuted. So you have the persecuted believers during the entire period, but there will be a definite increase in the tribulation, leading to that period that Jesus spoke of being unmatched in all of human history. That'll be more pronounced in the second three and a half. So you can see why there being some overlap here. That's why it's easy to be imprecise in referring to this period. I hope that's helpful for you, Mandy. God bless you for your question. Folks, that's going to be it for today. So, so pleased that you could join us today. Thank you for coming along. And I'm glad that you could join us. And I hope that you'll be able to join us for a future program when we get together. Again, you're comments, your questions in the live chat or as comments on the uh, in the comment section of the video. Always welcome. We appreciate them. And thanks for liking these videos. Thanks for subscribing if you're inclined to do that. And thanks for just being a part of this particular uh, video, podcast, however it is that you're receiving this content. God bless you. And I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful day. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.